Welcome to Norse Mythology, the unofficial guide. It's unofficial because I'm neither a credentialed academic nor a time-traveling medieval Norse pagan, but I deal with this material directly from the sources, interpreted through the lens of the experts and their opinions. If you're looking for depth and detail in a simple and accessible way, then you're in the right place. Appearances can often be deceiving, and the gods of Norse mythology are not immune to deception. Sometimes they dish it out, and sometimes they find themselves the victims. But whether you are crafty and cunning or strong and practical, anyone can fall prey to a tricky magician. In the prose Edda, Snorri's delivery of information often takes the form of a conversation between characters. In Gilvaginning specifically, he tells the story of a Swedish king who puts on a disguise and assumes the fake name of Gangleri, and then travels to another city in Sweden, named Osgarther after the home of the gods, where he meets three wizards who are likewise using their own magic to deceive him. But throughout their conversation, they teach him about Norse mythology. In course of that conversation, these wizards are all too happy to repeatedly mock Gangleri for asking about very simple things that they claim he ought to already understand. Until, finally, he asks a question that strikes a nerve. The wizards, who I often call the Highs, because their names are High, Just as High, and Third, have been going on and on about how amazing the Norse gods are until Gangleri poses the following question, quote, Has Thor never got into such a situation that he has come up against such great power or might that he has found it more than he could manage because of strength or magic? End quote. Suddenly the highs go on the defensive. Well, you know, if ever something like that did happen, it wouldn't really be worth talking about because everyone knows Thor is the mightiest anyway, they say. But Gangleri realizes he's finally gotten the upper hand in the conversation, and he pushes back, saying that it looks to him like he's just asked a question that nobody can answer. The wizards go back and forth with Gangleri just briefly, being reluctant to answer him, until finally the wizard calling himself third realizes that Gangleri is determined to get an answer, and he agrees to tell the story. But, he says before he begins, you are not to interrupt. I've admitted to being a Thor fanboy on this show before, and the reason I like Thor so much is because of his dutiful nature, his reliability, and, like Superman, the fact that he always saves the day. So, I understand the reluctance of the highs to tell this story to some degree, but, like third, my advice to you is to wait until you hear the whole thing before you start forming your takeaways. Once upon a time, Thor and Loki set off on a journey together. Loki is a frequent travel companion for the gods, and we've seen him work together with Thor before, specifically the time Thor had to dress up like a bride in order to retrieve his stolen hammer. In this case, the two of them have mounted up Thor's goat-drawn chariot and set off toward Jotunheimr, which is pretty much the only place Thor ever goes, and as evening arrives, they find themselves stopping off at the home of a peasant family for a meal and lodging for the night. We don't get any indication that this is a family that either of them already knows, but there's a lot of evidence that Germanic societies were big on hospitality, even towards strangers, so this type of thing probably isn't out of the ordinary either way. But what's a little more fun to wonder about is what type of beings this peasant family is supposed to be. We hear the word peasant, and our brains automatically assume humans. But are they humans? Or are they Jotnar? There's a really interesting stanza in the poem Himiskvida that speaks to this, and we'll come back to it in a little bit. 
Now, this peasant family consists of a husband, a wife, and two children, whose names you will probably recognize, Tjalvi and Roskva. And in order to feed the whole family, Thor slaughters his own two goats and adds them to the dinner pot. He's happy to share the meat with everyone, but he lays the goat skins near the fire and instructs the peasant family to place all of the bones on the skins. Thjalvi, for whatever reason, is not so great at following orders, and he splits open one of the bones with his knife to get at the marrow inside. The next morning, Thor gets up early to prepare for the journey and raises his hammer Mjolnir over the goat skins to bless them, and when he does, the goats, quote, got up, which is a really unsatisfying way of explaining that the goats are resurrected. In order for this to work, obviously, the bones clearly have to reassemble themselves, the meat and organs have to regrow, and the skins have to rewrap themselves around these goat bodies as they come back to life. Yet, in spite of all that magical regenerative healing, one of the goats is now somehow lame because Thjalvi had broken one of the bones the night before. It seems odd, but this is how it goes down, and Thor gets mad. Third, the wizard narrating this story interjects here that there's no need to make a big deal about how scary it must have been to be in the presence of an angry Thor, and then immediately proceeds to make a big deal about how scary it was to be in the presence of angry Thor. He describes Thor furrowing his brow down over his eyes, and how the eyes themselves were so terrifying that the peasant believed he would die just from the sight of them, and how Thor is clenching his hammer so tightly that his knuckles turn white, and how the peasant and his wife become so afraid that they begin begging for mercy and offering to give Thor all of their possessions in exchange for their own lives. But when Thor sees how afraid these people are, quote, Then his wrath left him, and he calmed down, and accepted from them in settlement their children, Thjalvi and Roskva. And they then became Thor's bondservants, and they have attended him ever since. End quote. Although the full version of this story comes to us by way of Snorri's prose Edda, I mentioned a moment ago that it's also briefly referenced in the poem Himiskvida in the Poetic Edda, and that brief reference gives us some fascinating extra insight. The story in Himiskvida involves Thor and Tyr venturing to the home of the Jotun Hymir to retrieve a gigantic cauldron, but to dramatically oversimplify things, one thing leads to another and they end up racing away from Hymir's house being chased by an army of Jotnar. When Thor discovers that they are being chased, he turns around and dispatches the entire army all on his own. But shortly thereafter, one of his goats collapses from exhaustion. The poet tells us that, quote, The draft beast was lamed through a curse this malevolent Loki had caused. But you have heard this. Anyone wiser about the gods may tell it more clearly. What recompense he got from the lava dweller, how he paid for it with both his children, end quote. It's a good thing we have the prosetta. Otherwise, we would probably believe that Loki had been forced to give his own children to Thor. It's important to keep in mind that these stories were never actually canonized, and certainly circulated in various forms. But here, the poet tells us that Thor's goat was lamed through a curse caused by Loki. A lot of modern interpretations have taken a guess that this could have been because maybe Loki enticed Thjalvi to break open the bone. But to be clear, that guess is a complete shot in the dark. Snorri's version agrees that Loki is present at the event, but whatever involvement he may have had in maiming the goat, in whatever version of the story he played some role in it, we are never told in the sources. The other interesting detail we get from this passage is that it calls the man who paid for Thor's goats with his children a lava whale which is one of a couple terms used throughout Himiskvida to refer to Jotnar generally. 
In that case, it's entirely possible that when Thor and Loki stayed the night with this peasant family, they were staying with a family of Jotnar. This isn't too crazy an idea. In the story where Thor journeys to Geirroder's home without his special tools, he stays the night with a friendly Jotun woman named Grither. We also have Agir, whose hall is used to hold feast for the gods and whose wife is described as a goddess, but he himself is listed as a Jotun in Skaldskaparmal. This reveals a complex and nuanced relationship between the Asir and the Jotnar. They don't always have to adhere to the general motivations and characteristics of their respective clans. Not every Jotun is an enemy of the gods. Additionally, thinking of Thjalvi as a Jotun suddenly helps clarify how he was able to prevail in combat with the nine-mile-tall Mokurkalvi in the story where Thor battles Hrungnir. To me, this is a detail that fits pretty well. To be fair, Snorri's description does sort of seem to imply that Thor and Loki have not actually reached Jotunheimer just yet. Back in the prose Edda, Thor leaves his goats behind and continues his journey alongside Loki, Thjalvi, and Roskva, eastward towards Jotunheimer, which requires them to come to a great sea, cross it, and arrive on land on the other side. This matches Snorri's description of the shape of the world, wherein he describes the land of humans in the center, surrounded by a huge donut-shaped sea, and the Jotnar being given lands encircling the outer edge of that sea. It looks a little like Snorri might believe Thjalvi and Roskva are humans, but contradictions are to be expected in a system where the entire mythology was passed on orally from generation to generation and from place to place. When the travel companions finally reach their destination, they find themselves in a huge forest. After walking all day with Thjalvi, who we are told is the fastest of runners carrying Thor's knapsack, there is no lodging to be found. But as night falls, they discover a large building with an entrance taking up the full width of one of the walls, and they decide that this looks like a decent place to bed down for the night. But at midnight, suddenly there's an earthquake. Everything starts shaking all around them, and Thor calls out to his companions, presumably either to make sure they're okay or to take charge of the situation in some way. And they start searching around for safety and end up gathering in a smaller chamber off to one side of the building. Thor then positions himself in the doorway of that chamber, between his fearful companions and whatever's causing the earthquake outside, with his hammer at the ready, preparing to defend himself. Loud rumbling and groaning continues all night, and when dawn finally comes, Thor exits the building to look around and discovers a gigantic person sleeping on the ground nearby, snoring. Realizing that this giant was the cause of all their troubles during the night, Thor clasps on his girdle of might, preparing to solve this problem in the most Thor-appropriate way. But suddenly the giant wakes up and stands up from the ground, revealing his true size. And then, our narrator explains, quote, They say that Thor for once was afraid to strike him with the hammer, and asked him his name, and he said that his name was Skrymir, end quote. Skrymir acknowledges that he already knows who Thor is, and points out that the building the travelers had been sheltering in all night was actually just his enormous glove, and they'd been sheltering in one of the finger holes. This moment becomes a blemish on Thor's otherwise spotless record of courage. In the poem Lokasena, when Loki is insulting all the gods and blurting out everyone's secrets, Thor's name is invoked, and he quickly appears at the gathering to put an end to things. He has to threaten Loki with death a few times before Loki actually decides to leave the party, but before he leaves, he takes the following shot at Thor in stanza 60, quote, 
Your eastern journeys you should never relate to people, since in the thumb of a glove you crouched cowering, you hero, and then you didn't seem like Thor." End quote. This insult is pretty absurd in that Loki himself was present at that event and also crouched cowering in the thumb of a glove. The way Snorri tells the story, Thor doesn't actually do much cowering at all, but strategically positions himself in such a way that he will be able to defend Loki and the others who are all hiding behind him. It sort of makes you wonder whether some of Loki's other insults in Lokasena are deliberately exaggerated, but this isn't the only time this event would come back to haunt Thor in an insult battle. In the poem Harbarthsjoth, Odin disguises himself as a ferryman and refuses to let Thor cross a river. The two hurl insults at each other for a while until Thor finally decides to take a longer route around the water. In stanza 26, Odin hits Thor with this line, quote, Thor has quite enough strength and no guts. In fear and cowardice, you were stuffed in a glove, and you didn't seem like Thor. You dared in your terror neither to sneeze nor fart in case Fjallar might hear. End quote. In this reference, Skrymir's name has been changed to Fjallar, which is a common name for minor characters in these stories, and like I said, contradictions are to be expected in an oral tradition like this one. It's interesting that Snorri's version does not exactly mirror the description in either Lokasena or Harbarthsjoth, which I think supports the idea that he's drawing his version from some other source that no longer survives. But in any case, they say that Thor for once was afraid to strike Skrymir with the hammer. This is another instance illustrating the fact that Jotnar are not normally gigantic. Otherwise, we wouldn't expect Skrymir's size and the way he affects his environment because of his size to be so completely out of Thor's comfort zone. But rather than become hostile, Skrymir actually offers to join the others on their journey, and even offers to carry all the food for the whole party. Thor, apparently serving as leader of the group, agrees to this, and so Skrymir ties all the food up into his knapsack, and they continue on into the forest with Skrymir taking enormous strides the whole way. By evening, he finds them a good camping spot under a large oak tree and hands the knapsack filled with food to Thor, suggesting that Thor and his companions should eat dinner, but that Skrymir himself is actually ready for bed. He falls asleep and goes back to snoring again. Thor begins making an attempt to untie the knapsack, but quickly realizes that no matter how hard he struggles with it, the knot just isn't getting any looser. When he realizes his efforts aren't getting him anywhere, he gets frustrated and decides to take that frustration out on the sleeping Skrymir. He picks up his hammer, takes a step toward where Skrymir lies asleep under the oak tree, and brings it crashing down on Skrymir's head. Skrymir opens up his eyes at this and innocently asks Thor, hey, did a leaf just fall on my head or something? And by the way, have you, have you all had dinner yet? Is everybody ready for bed or what? Surely confused by the fact that Skrymir's head hasn't been shattered into pieces, Thor responds that, yes, they are indeed ready to go to sleep. Thor, Loki, Thjalvi, and Roskva then move to another nearby oak and try to get some shut-eye, but are having trouble sleeping without fear due to this new, gigantic, loud, and unsettling member of their party. At midnight, Skrymir's snoring starts to get loud, and Thor has had just about enough of it. He approaches Skrymir with the hammer again and takes another huge swing at the giant's head. This time, he feels it sink deep into its target, but Skrymir wakes up again and innocently asks Thor what's going on and whether or not an acorn has just fallen on his head. Thor replies that he had just woken up, but that it's only midnight and Skrymir should just go back to sleep. 
Inwardly, however, Thor is getting pretty upset about this, and resolves that if he can find a third opportunity to strike with his hammer, Skrimmer is never going to wake up again. He waits for hours, and then a little before dawn, he determines that Skrimmer must be asleep, and quickly makes his third attack. This time, the hammer sinks in all the way to its handle. But just as before, Skrimmer casually wakes up, asks whether some birds in the branches above him are dropping some rubbish on his head, and decides it must be time to get up and get moving. Everyone gets ready to move, but Skrimmer reveals that he doesn't intend to travel with the party any farther. At this point, he tells them he's going to head north, whereas their destination, the castle of a Jotun named Utgartha Loki, whose name means Loki of the Outer Enclosure, lies to the east. The Jotnar in this castle are even bigger, Skrimmer warns, and they, quote, will not easily put up with cheekiness from babies like you, end quote. He advises them that a wise course of action would be to turn back instead. He then takes up his knapsack and heads off into the forest with the rest of the group feeling glad to be rid of him. The others do not heed Skrimmer's advice and instead continue eastward. By midday, they come to a castle standing in some open ground that is so ridiculously tall, they would have had to have leaned so far back that their heads touched their spines in order to see the top of it. It has a huge gate as well, and Thor finds himself unable to force the gate open in yet another humiliating defeat. But everyone is small enough that they are able to squeeze through the bars and make their way inside regardless. Once inside, they enter a hall filled with people sitting on benches, most of them being, quote, a fair size. Venturing further in, they come before the king, the giant named Utgartha Loki, but when they address him, he is slow to pay any attention to them. And when he finally acknowledges their presence, he bares his teeth in what must be a wicked smile and immediately starts mocking Thor for being smaller than he expected. He mentions that no one is allowed to stay in his castle unless they can perform amazing feats and asks the companions what special skills they would like to demonstrate. Loki, who was standing in the back of the group, speaks up first and asserts that he can eat faster than anyone in the room. Utgar the Loki is intrigued by this claim and he calls down to the bench to someone named Logi to come forward and test Loki's eating abilities. A trencher is fetched, filled with meat, and placed between the two competitors, with one on each end, and they begin eating. Both eat quickly, and they end up meeting right in the middle. But by then, Loki had only eaten the meat off the bones, but Logi had eaten not only the meat, but also the bones and his whole side of the trencher as well. Loki has failed. Next, Utgar the Loki singles out Thor's newly acquired bondservant, Thjalvi, and asks what great feat he can perform. Thjalvi claims himself to be a fast runner, so everyone shuffles outside for a race, and Utgar the Loki calls for, quote, a little fellow called Hugi to come and compete against Thjalvi. The race begins, and Hugi quickly wins by so much distance that he can turn around at the finish line and watch Thjalvi come in. Utgar the Loki lets Thjalvi know that he is indeed pretty fast, but that he's going to have to do better than that if he's going to beat Hoogie. So they line up for another race, and this one goes pretty much exactly the same way. Hoogie finishes the race, turns back, and sees that Thjalvi is still a full arrow shot behind him. Utgar the Loki now voices the fact that he no longer has any belief Thjalvi can possibly win, but he allows for a third race anyhow. And just as we might expect, by the time Hugi reaches the finish line, Thjalvi has only reached the halfway point. Thjalvi has failed. Lastly, Utgar the Loki turns to Thor. 
We've all heard such great stories of your exploits, he says, and asks which of Thor's famous skills he would like to put on display. Thor replies that he would like to compete against someone in drinking, and so Utgartha Loki calls for his servant to bring Thor a drinking horn. The horn he comes back with doesn't look too big around, but it is weirdly long, and Utgartha Loki mentions that a good drinker can normally empty it out in one draft. Sometimes it takes two drafts, but nobody is such a poor drinker that they can't at least empty it in three. So Thor knocks it back and is taking enormous gulp after enormous gulp until he finally runs out of breath and has to stop. When he does, he looks at the horn and notices that the level of liquid in it has barely gone down at all. Utgartha Loki comments that this attempt wasn't too bad, although he would have expected Thor to be able to do a lot better. So Thor hits the horn again, but it's so long that he's having trouble lifting it as far back as he wants. He keeps swallowing liquid until he runs out of breath, but of course the horn is still mostly full. Although the level has now gone down far enough that the horn can be carried around without any fear of spilling it. Utgartha Loki tells Thor that he's basically failed at any attempt to be impressive at this point, but that he might as well give it one more go. Thor gets angry at this, as he does about everything, and goes at it one more time, struggling for all he's worth to drink it all down, and by the time he's finished, he's made a noticeable dent, but still hasn't come anywhere near draining the whole horn. Utgartha Loki now asks Thor if he'd like to try and redeem himself in some other contests, and Thor agrees. He comments, either out of confusion or distrust, that he would have been surprised if drinks like this had been thought of as so small back home among the Asir, and he asks what game Utgar the Loki has in mind next. It may seem kind of weird, Utgar the Loki replies, but around here, people like to try and see if they're strong enough to pick up my cat. I wouldn't have bothered telling you about this game, but since you've proven to be less impressive than I thought, I figure you might want to give it a try. At this, a huge gray cat runs into the room, and Thor puts his hands around the cat's midsection and begins to lift. Unfortunately, no matter how high he lifts, the cat just arches its back more and more, and after some amount of struggling, the best Thor is able to do is get just one of the cat's paws off the floor. Utgar the Loki calls off the game at this point, noting that it went just about exactly as he'd expected it to go, since Thor is so small in comparison to the gigantic Jotnar all around the room. By now, Thor is pretty much seething and demands to prove his strength by fighting someone, but Utgar the Loki is just sort of like... I don't know, man. I'm pretty sure anyone here would just feel like it was demeaning to fight you. Oh, here we go. How about you wrestle this old woman? And he calls for his nurse, Ellie, who is an elderly lady, but who Utgar the Loki insists will be a good wrestling opponent for Thor. The match, of course, is an utter disaster for the strongest of the gods. No matter how hard Thor struggles, Ellie just stands firm. And when she starts employing some of her own wrestling tricks, she ends up forcing him down onto one knee and Utgartha Loki calls the match. He refuses to let Thor fight anyone else, and since it's getting late, he calls an end to the evening's festivities. He has Thor and his companions shown to their room, where they stay for the night, and are actually treated with a lot of hospitality. Likewise, in the morning, there is an impressive breakfast spread prepared for them, and they are once again treated extremely hospitably until they decide to depart the castle and head home. Utgar the Loki accompanies them outside and asks Thor whether he feels like he's finally met his match with the Jotnar he met here at the castle, and Thor admits that he's suffered some difficult losses the previous night. 
But the thing that bothers him the most, he says, is that he knows Utgar the Loki will now talk about him to others as a person of very little account. Reputation is everything. However, now that they're outside the castle, Utgar the Loki tells Thor he's going to let him in on a little secret. If he'd known how strong Thor really was, and how close he was going to come to bringing disaster upon his castle, he never would have let Thor into the castle in the first place, and will be doing everything in his power for as long as he lives to make sure Thor never comes back to that castle again. You see, he says, I've actually deceived you with appearances. When you met Skrymir in the forest, that was actually me. And when I tied the knapsack, I did it with a trick wire that makes it impossible to find the place where it has to be unfastened. And honestly, any one of your hammer blows would have killed me instantly. But you see that mountain over there with those three huge square valleys smashed into it? Yeah, that's because I magically moved that mountain in front of my head so that you were hitting it with your hammer instead of me. Plus, I rigged all the competitions last night. When Loki went up against Logi in that eating contest, well, Logi literally means flame. We put him up against a literal wildfire, which is why it was able to consume everything as fast as Loki could eat just the meat. And when Thjalvi raced against Hugi, well, Hugi means thought. He was racing against my literal thoughts, and nobody can run faster than a mind can think. When you were having trouble drinking from the horn, the reason it was so long and hard to empty was that the other end of it was actually out in the sea, and you literally drank so much of the sea that you've just created the tides. When you tried to lift up my cat, you scared everyone half to death, because guess what? That wasn't my cat. It was the giant world serpent that's so large it encircles the whole earth, and you nearly lifted it all the way up to the sky. And when you wrestled that old woman, it was really a miracle how well you did, because her name Ellie means old age, and you were literally fighting against old age, which is a fight everyone is bound to lose eventually. So now that I've told you all this, I'm going to take off, and I highly advise you not to try and find your way back to my castle, because if you do, I'm going to defend it again with very similar tricks. At this point, Thor reaches for his hammer and raises it up into the air to take a quick swing at Utgar the Loki, but by the time he brings it down, Utgar the Loki has already disappeared. So he turns back towards the castle, intending to smash it to bits instead, but the castle, likewise, has disappeared, leaving only a beautiful, wide-open field where it previously stood. Without any way to take revenge on Utgar the Loki, the party decides to head home. But Thor isn't ready to give up so easily. He may not know where to find Utgar the Loki specifically, but he does have an idea about how he might be able to get another shot at the World Serpent, and we will talk about that story next time. I noticed something interesting as I was putting this episode together that I hadn't noticed before. We discussed in episode 1 how important the number 9 is in Norse mythology, and if we take Lokasena and Harbarthslio's descriptions into account, Thor and his friends actually suffer exactly nine humiliations in this story. Thor is afraid while in the glove, he can't untie the knapsack, and he can't kill Skrymir with his hammer. He can't force open the castle gate, he can't drain the drinking horn, and he can't lift the cat. He fails to subdue Ellie, Loki fails to eat more than Logi, and Thjalvi loses the race to Hugi. Nine. What's even more fun is that three of these come in groups of three, giving us another nine. There are three failed hammer strikes, three incomplete drafts taken from the horn, and three lost races run. Now, does this mean anything special or mysterious? 
probably not, but it was a fun detail to discover nonetheless. If anything, maybe it lends a little credibility to the idea that this story is indeed drawn from older material. But getting away from math, I want to pose a question. In this particular story, many of the Jotnar appear as gigantic beings. However, the World Serpent also appears as a cat, and Wildfire, Thought, and Old Age all appear as people. Utgar the Loki appears first as Skrimir, who, although he is big enough to be out of the ordinary for Thor's experiences with Jotnar, makes the point that Jotnar at Utgar the Loki's castle are even bigger, which presumably includes himself when in Utgar the Loki form. At one point, Thor is even able to reach up to the sky without realizing he's doing it. So the question is this, do you suppose that any of these giants were actually giants? Or do you think their size was all just a part of Utgar the Loki's deception designed to make Thor feel small? I'm going to leave you to ponder that for a while, and I hope you'll let me know what you think. In the meantime, I'm going to start preparing for next time. We've got an epic fishing trip ahead of us on the next episode of Norse Mythology, The Unofficial Guide. We had a big story today and a lot less scholarly analysis. Sources for this episode include The Poetic Edda, translated by Caroline Larrington, 2014, and The Prose Edda, translated by Anthony Falks, 1995.